Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley, and I am one of the pastors on staff here at Paradox Church in Redlands, California. Our church was founded about five years ago, and we use sermons to start discussions rather than end them. We are currently on a 66-part series through the books of the Bible, which we started all the way back in 2013, before Paradox was even a church. We are currently on part 57, 57 of 66 books, and we are studying the book of Lamentations. We've been able to keep on going through all of these years due to generous support from donors at ParadoxGiving.com. Today we are looking at Lamentations chapter 3, and this episode is entitled Experiencing Hope. on the podcast, then you know that this series in the book of Lamentations has been challenging. During the first week of this series, we talked about Lamentations 1, and I pointed out that the thesis of Lamentations is that God does not answer prayer. Bit of a bummer message there. Then last week, we talked about the movie Cars and how it illustrated what happens in Lamentations 2. And what we talked about was the idea that if you are a person of faith, then God will, at some point, betray you. Now, if this makes you uncomfortable, then I want you to know that I have been doing my job correctly. Because the book of Lamentations is unsettling. That being said, you are probably weary of your discomfort and are longing for something a bit more positive. And to you who long for something a bit more positive, I have some good news. Today's sermon is about hope, because Lamentations 3 is a poem about hope. Now, if you are a church-going person, you may be very excited by this news. After all, the church loves to tell the people around them that the church is all about hope. If you were to go to church and ask the pastor, tell me what passage of the Bible I can read to have hope the pastor would happily point you to verses and passages like Psalms 23, perhaps the most famous passage in the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 23, 1-3 reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, upon hearing these words, most congregations I know explode with an enthusiastic, Amen. Christians love the words of Psalm 23. But not everyone finds the words of Psalm 23 to be comforting or helpful. In fact, I can imagine someone shouting from the back, give me a break. And upon hearing those words, the whole church would turn to the back of the building and see a man standing up with what looks like a mild rage in his eyes. The man would be the poet behind the poem of Lamentations 3. Now, if this happened at Paradox, I would look at this man and I'd say, Excuse me, what did you say? And he would look at me unflinchingly and say, Psalm 23 is garbage. 
Now, I would look at this man, this poet, and say, uh, sir, you can't say that Psalm 23 is garbage because a lot of people really like Psalm 23. And I believe the poet would respond, I wrote part of the Bible, Craig. I can say whatever the heck I want to say. And I want to say that Psalm 23 is garbage. And I would say to this man, this poet, I would say, garbage? There's a lot of people who have read this psalm and found an immense amount of hope in troubled times. To which I imagine the poet of Lamentations 3 rolling his eyes and saying, hope? You think Psalm 23 is about hope? I'll show you a poem about hope that's in the Bible. And he would instruct us to turn to Lamentations 3, which is not nearly as familiar to Christians as Psalm 23. Lamentations 3, 1 reads, I am the man who has experienced affliction from the rod of the Lord's wrath. Now, this is an interesting choice of words, because if you go back to Psalm 23, you read about how the psalmist says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But here, the lamenter says, I am the man who has experienced affliction from the rod of the Lord's wrath. It's almost like this author is writing an anti-poem to counter the theology that comes forward in Psalm 23. But it doesn't just end with verse 1. He continues this commentary on that other more famous psalm. He writes in verse 2, God drove me into captivity and made me walk in darkness and not light. God repeatedly attacks me. God turns their hand against me all day long. God has made my mortal skin waste away. God has broken my bones. God has made me reside in deepest darkness like those who died long ago. So the psalmist proclaims that God leads him through the darkness. But the lamentor says, no, 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 no. God makes me stay in the darkness. <laughs> And what's interesting here is it's almost like you can feel the lamentor saying to everyone else, like, look, if you think that God is a shepherd, then let me tell you that God is a terrible shepherd. God does not take care of me, or in the metaphor, God does not take care of God's own sheep. From there, the poem in Lamentations 3 takes a bit of a dramatic turn. We read in verse 8, also, when I cry out desperately for help, God has shut out my prayer. This is keeping with the thesis that we talked about in chapter 1, that Lamentations testifies that God does not answer prayer. Verse 10 reads, to me, God is like a bear lying in ambush, like a hidden lion stalking its prey. God drew God's bow and made me the target for their arrows. God shot their arrows into my heart. So I said, my endurance has expired. I have lost all hope of deliverance from the Lord. Now this is an intense passage of scripture. After declaring that if God is a shepherd, then God is a terrible shepherd, the poet of Lamentations cites what he feels like is his experience with God. He writes that God ignores my prayers that God lies in the bushes to ambush me, and God also shoots arrows directly into my heart. Therefore, 
I have no hope. In verse 20, we read, I continually think about this and I am depressed. But this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Now, upon reading these words in verse 21, I remember thinking, hope? Didn't we just give up on hope? Just a few verses ago, the author said, I have no hope. And here in verse 22, the author says, well, now I have hope. (laughs) And for the next section of this poem, you will be tempted to think that we have jumped into a cloud car and flown to Carolot to live among the Care Bears because all of a sudden, everything is awesome. We read, the Lord's loyal kindness never ceases. God's compassions never end. They are fresh every morning. God's faithfulness is abundant. My portion is the Lord, I have said to myself, so I will put my hope in the Lord. The Lord is good to those who trust in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait patiently for deliverance from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let a person sit alone in silence when the Lord is disciplining him. Let him bury his face in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. And then the poet drops one of my favorite lines in all of scripture. The poet says in verse 31, For the Lord will not reject us forever. I love that line. Imagine if we made that line our church's mission statement. God will not reject us forever. (laughs) I love it because it's a phrase that ultimately testifies to the steadfastness of God and also the complete failure of God. It is a paradoxical statement that brings me sheer theological joy. The Lord will not reject us forever. So just a quick recap. We read that if God is a shepherd, then God is a terrible shepherd. God ignores prayers, lies in the bushes to ambush me, and shoots arrows through my heart, and therefore I have no hope. Then all of a sudden, the author shifts gears and says, but I am overflowing with hope as well. God is reliable. God is compassionate. God is wonderful, and God will not reject us forever. But this isn't a total turnaround. Because just a few verses later in 41 and 42, the poet writes, let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven because we have blatantly rebelled and you, O God, have not forgiven. (laughs) Which is just, it's perfect. It's perfect because the author is saying, yeah, we screwed up, but God did not hold up God's end of the bargain. I mean, God needs to forgive us for this. Now, from there, the author goes back into a dark and dispirited mode. In verse 45, we read the words that you, O God, have made us filth and rubbish among the peoples. Verse 48 and 49, we read about tears flowing without ceasing. And then in the last section of this poem, we read about unresolved justice and the anger the author has toward the enemies around him as he considers all the wrong they have done to him and they have gone unpunished. 
The last verse of Lamentations 3 reads, Pursue my enemies, O God, in anger, and eradicate them from under the Lord's heaven. And just like that, the poem is over. Now, upon reading this poem, the response I have is, What just happened here in Lamentations 3? And if the author of Lamentations 3 was a living person and could somehow appear on this podcast, I would ask the question, hey, I just read your poem. What happened here? And I picture the author grabbing the microphone and saying, well, I just told you about hope. Then he would unplug from everything around him and walk out of the door without any further explanation. So what just happened here in Lamentations 3? Well, I fully believe that the poet behind the poem is trying to convey some urgent and important ideas about hope because this author is tired of a cheap, shallow, and sentimental hope that he has been fed throughout his entire life. I think this poem really says four important things about hope that are immensely helpful to us today when we consider what it means to have hope in 2021. So let's begin with the first thing, shall we? To see how the author is talking about hope, we need to go back 3,000 years. Now, if you've listened to this podcast, particularly in the last two weeks, this will be a bit of a review because this event ultimately shapes the Book of Lamentations. Sometime around 1000 BCE, a man named Saul united the 12 tribes of Israel and formed it into the nation of Israel. Now, Israel would later become known as Judah, and this nation, Judah, existed for 400 years before a military superpower rose to the east known as Babylon. Babylon launched an attack in 586 BCE, and leveled the city of Jerusalem. They forced the survivors to come back with them to Babylon and live in Babylonian exile for the next several years. Now, upon arriving in Babylon, there was a rampant fear throughout the people of Judah. This fear was that they would eventually merge into Babylonian culture and their way of life and their heritage would be forgotten. For this reason, they cried out to the heavens and begged God for mercy. They asked God to liberate them with a mighty hand. And after one year and two years and three years of praying this prayer, God remained silent. This went on for 47 years. And sometime in that window of 47 years, the five poems of Lamentations were composed while in Babylonian exile. They were composed after praying this prayer, God, show us mercy, year in and year out, and receiving no response from on high. How would you feel in Babylonian exile after years of praying to God for mercy and receiving no response? I ask you these questions because you have to understand that the people of Judah lived through a traumatic experience. Not only that, but when we read writings from that era, 
of 47 years, we realize that they are living in unresolved trauma. And the poet does not shy away from the trauma that occurred in order to talk about hope. Rather, the poet dives headfirst into the trauma to talk about hope. This is an important lesson for us today. Because as I said earlier, the church loves to tell the world we have hope, which is wonderful because the world needs hope. We are suffering from rampant homophobia. We are suffering from systemic and personal racism. We are suffering from misguided and horrific sexism. So when the world goes to the church and says, we have all of these sins around us, what is the hope that you have to offer? The church responds by saying, we have hope that Jesus Christ will return and take the righteous back with him to heaven while the wicked are left to perish with the earth. Which sounds all well and good until you recognize that none of these sins are changing with that attitude until a much later time. So it's here that someone may object to the church saying, well, God will solve all the problems later. And the response is, but can God solve the problems now? Can the church solve the problems now? We want to solve the problems in the world right now. Do you have any hope for us in this world? To which the church would say, oh, you're wanting hope for this planet? Too bad. There's no hope for this planet. Really just hang on and survive and hope to God that God returns. Do you see how this hope is the exact opposite of the hope that's offered in Lamentations 3? The hope that the church offers is one that encourages you to avoid the trauma, avoid the suffering, avoid the pain that is happening around you, and just lock yourself in your room until Christ returns, because the only solution is later. This isn't a message of hope it's a message of despair. And I think it's important for us to learn this as we consider ourselves to be people who are called to hope. The first lesson we can learn from Lamentations 3 is that hope includes our suffering. And when hope offers a way to skirt around suffering, it becomes cheap, superficial, and hollow. Hope includes our suffering. The second thing we can learn from Lamentations 3 about the idea of hope occurs when we look at the structure of this poem. Now this poem is 66 verses long and there are three distinct sections between those 66 verses. In verse 1 to 20 we hear about how the author has no hope. Then in the <laughs> complete opposite direction in verses 21 to 42 we hear over and over again about how the author has so much hope and then from verse 43 to 66 i basically summarize that section as the author saying omg i can't stop crying this poem is an emotional roller coaster but it's a bit of a familiar emotional roller coaster isn't it how many of you look at these three different steps, I have no hope. I have so much hope. OMG, I can't stop crying. And think to yourself, 
Yeah, that was basically the year 2020 for me. Because <laughs> that's exactly how I feel. We have this idea that if we have the hope of God in our hearts, that we will somehow rise above our emotional roller coasters and be consistent and happy and optimistic all the time. But the truth is, I look back at the last 16 months and I have to tell you, I know a lot of really brilliant spiritual people. And I don't know anyone who experienced hope in a linear fashion in the last 16 months. Not only that, but the guy who wrote the Bible, or part of the Bible, I should say, who wrote Lamentations 3, shows us what hope looks like. There are moments of intense doubt where you wonder if you have any hope at all, juxtaposed against other moments where you're convinced that you have the greatest hope imaginable, and in between all of that is a bunch of tears. The second thing that Lamentations 3 teaches us about hope is that hope never unfolds in a linear fashion. There are days it is four steps forward and three steps back. There are other days it is seven steps backwards and one step forward. There are other days it is 22 steps forward and zero steps back. But hope is not a place where you arrive. Hope is a journey that ebbs and flows like the tide. Hope never unfolds in a linear fashion. The third thing that Lamentations 3 teaches us about hope can be traced all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth in six days. During these creation days, God always looks back as the sun is setting and declares that what has just been created is good. Apparently, there is something in the divine that will look at what is and accept its goodness and appreciate it. When we consider creation in all of its terrifying beauty, we realize that there is something profound happening here in the book of Genesis. To believe in God is to believe that the fundamental nature of our shared human existence is good. After all, if this was a bad existence, then God would not have created us as so. Now, there are some who object to this idea and say that, yes, God declared that the earth was good before sin entered the world. And while that may sound like sound reasoning, there is one major problem that people have to deal with. The testimony of Jesus Christ who under the cover of darkness told an old and aged religious leader the following words, for God so loved the world that God gave. Apparently, even after sent into the world, God still loved this world. I tell you this because it's easy for us to talk about the goodness of creation when we don't acknowledge suffering and pain. But there are people who, for centuries and even millenniums, have declared that even this world, with all of its pain, heartache, suffering, betrayal, and hatred, is still, at its very core, 
ultimately good. We read this in Lamentations 3. When the author, writing from exile, writing from suffering, writing from a place he would not be, writes the following words. He says, it is good to wait patiently for deliverance from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Apparently, this author, living in exile, looks around at this imperfect existence and thinks to himself, it is good to be here. Sure, it's better to be back where we would prefer, but ultimately I have to accept the goodness of right now in all of the ways that I wouldn't accept it otherwise. And while it's tempting to write off the author of Lamentations 3 and say, oh, this is so shallow, he's naive, all these things, you have to remember that when he says it is good to wait in silence for God, that he's talked a lot about his suffering. He's not turning a blind eye to the pain his people are experiencing. Rather, he's living fully in it. And he's not somebody who has been immune to suffering, but he's someone who has suffered some of the worst that this life has to offer. And he writes to us and says, it is possible for you to find something good in whatever situation you're in. This is a kind of hope that I want. And it reminds me of the hope as written by another poet named Emily Dickinson, who once wrote in her poem, Hope, these words. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. My friends, Lamentations 3 teaches us that hope looks at all that life has to offer and declares that life is good. Which brings us to the fourth thing that Lamentations 3 can teach us about hope, which I believe to be the most important thing. 76 years ago this summer, the United States of America dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. A few days later, they dropped a second atomic bomb on the city of Nagasaki. These two instances are the only instances where human beings have used nuclear weapons on other human beings. Due to the destructive nature of atomic bombs, it is nearly impossible to fully calculate the number of people who were killed by those bombs on those two different days. I have seen conservative estimates that say between the two blasts, 100,000 civilians died at the hands of American weapons. More liberal estimates show that upwards of 300,000 died between the two blasts. And whether you take the more liberal or the more conservative estimate, either way, it is an unfathomable amount of death in an instant. Not only that, but there was a real sense among the scientific community that nuclear warfare would have long-lasting implications that simply could not be undone. 
For this reason, at the conclusion of World War II, there was a group of atomic scientists who came together and began to publish a magazine entitled The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. On the cover art was a clock ticking closer to midnight. The clock depicted on the cover of the magazine was set at 11.53, seven minutes away from midnight. This doomsday clock was meant to bring a sense of urgency to the public, to warn them that when we continue to develop nuclear weapons, we are bringing ourselves closer to the end of civilization. And the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists arbitrarily chose seven minutes from midnight because that's about how close they felt after the fact that people were using atomic bombs on each other now. A few years later, the United States of America successfully detonated a hydrogen bomb, which was much more deadly and powerful than an atomic bomb. A few years after that, the Soviet Union was able to successfully detonate their own hydrogen bomb. And with these new weapons in their hands and with growing tensions, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the clock up to 11.58 p.m., just a mere two minutes from midnight. Scientists began to believe the end of the human race was imminent. But then something funny happened. Things got better. In 1963, while tensions were still high between the Soviet Union and the United States of America, they somehow negotiated a bit of a peace when it came to nuclear weapons. They promised each other that they would no longer test nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. From now on, the United States and USSR agreed that they would test all of their nuclear weapons underground. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us in 2021, but it was such a big deal to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, they moved the clock back to only 12 minutes from midnight. They felt this was a better situation than when they first introduced the Doomsday Clock in 1947. However, there were more tensions that began to boil over. In 1968, due to the Vietnam War, they moved the clock back up to seven minutes till midnight. Then there were more peace treaties. The SALT agreements were signed in Moscow in 1972, and they turned the clock back to 10 minutes till midnight. After a few years, however, tensions began to rise once again between the United States and the Soviet Union, and they sped the clock up to a mere three minutes from midnight. However, in 1991, there was a landmark agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union when there was the signing of the START Agreement. This was the furthest the doomsday clock has been set back, which was 17 minutes from midnight, 11.43 p.m., and it was set there in 1991. A little over 25 years later, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists sped up the clock significantly when the President of the United States threatened nuclear war with Korea over Twitter. Oh, thank God we survived that one. <laughs> the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists set the clock at two and a half minutes till midnight. They sped it up another 30 seconds the year after that when the United States announced they would be withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord 
saying that we were reaching a near point of no return when it came to climate change. And then in 2020, between abandoned nuclear peace talks, as well as the grim reports of climate change, on top of the spreading novel coronavirus, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the clock up to the closest it had ever been to midnight, a mere 100 seconds away from the extinction of humanity. This number was then reaffirmed in January of 2021. And some of the most reputable scientists on earth believe that we are the closest we have ever been since 1947 to reaching points where we can no longer save our own lives. My friends, if you are not aware, we live here in the last 100 seconds to midnight. We live with all kinds of threats surrounding us. There is the climate crisis, the threats of nuclear warfare, the unknown threats of cyber warfare, we are still recovering and living in a global pandemic. And we do not know what kind of horrors lie over the horizon due to the rise of artificial intelligence. On top of all of those things that exist, that the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists look at when setting their doomsday clock, you also have to look at the problems and the sins of racism, sexism, homophobia, economic inequality, and the troubling rise of populism. This is where we live in 2021. And I don't know about you, but there's days I feel overwhelmed by it all. There's days I feel like none of it's getting any better. There are days that I feel completely hopeless and completely helpless. One of those days occurred this week when I was putting my son Bodie to bed. Now Bodie is four and a half years old and there was this moment where I was changing him from his daytime clothes into his jammies. As I was putting his jammies on, I made eye contact with him. And without being prompted by anything, I felt this overwhelming sense of sadness. I was worried for his kids. Now, I don't even know if Bodhi wants kids, <laughs> but if he wanted kids, it seems like their life prospects aren't very good at this point. The climate crisis really puts into doubt the quality of life that my son's kids can have. And on that day, I just remember trying to put on a brave face for my son as I put him to bed and then I went back downstairs and just felt overwhelmed by it all feels like a pretty grim situation doesn't it a hundred seconds from midnight scientists are saying this is the closest to doom that we have been in the last 70 years and it's here that i think it's valuable for us to read the book of lamentations because here we have a story in a dire situation. The Babylonian exile. This is not when things are going according to plan. 
This is not when God is parting the Red Sea and showing the Israelites how God is with them. This is when God, according to the people of Judah, has abandoned them. And it's from that space that the author writes a poem about hope in Lamentations 3. And it proves an important point for all of us to remember. If hope doesn't work in exile, then hope doesn't work at all. And the poet does not gloss over things or sugarcoat things at all, does he? The author looks at us and says, hey, when I wrote that poem, our backs were against the wall. We were mere seconds from our destruction. And then somehow, some way, against all odds, we lived to tell our story. Hope won out when hope was hard to come by. I believe that the fourth thing that Lamentations 3 can teach us about hope is that hope existed in Babylon, which means that hope can exist today. I think it's the easy route to be cynical. I think it's the easy route to believe that nothing can be done. We still have time to make a difference in this world. And making a difference in this world is the very substance of what it means to be alive. Because if we're still breathing, it means that we can still do something to create a better tomorrow. And I believe that is what it truly means to follow God. A few days ago, I felt overwhelmed with sadness thinking about my son's children's future. And when I think about it, I think it is a daunting task that we're facing, you know, with climate crisis and nuclear weapons and public health. I mean, it's a bit overwhelming, right? But then I reminded myself that every generation has their own unique set of challenges. If I was living in Judah in the 6th century BCE, my son and I would have had to try to live through the Babylonian conquest and exile. I'm not sure we would have made it. Not only that, but throughout most of human history, 25% of women died in childbirth. It's only very recently that those numbers have changed. Not only that, but children up until very recently, we're only given a 50% chance of living past the age of five. And thanks to the incredible progress of modern medicine, it's not really a stunning thing that both my kids have made it to the age of five and beyond. I tell you all of these things because every generation has their struggles. And our generation's great struggle is the climate crisis. And while things look grim and there are times that we feel helpless, I believe that this is something that we can meet head on. I believe that this is something that can be changed. I believe that you and I are not foolhardy for having hope that things can be better. 
here in 2021 with all of the overwhelming heartache and daunting things that we are facing. My friends, 100 seconds from midnight on the doomsday clock, I believe that there is something good about being alive today. And I have hope that things will be even better tomorrow. May we be people of hope that have that deep hope that the author of Lamentations 3 had so long ago. And may we see and embrace the hope of Jesus Christ in all, even in the year 2021.